Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. John Mullins is an associate professor of management practice at the London Business School, where I spent about a year studying. He earned his MBA at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and his PhD at the University of Minnesota. He's an award-winning teacher and scholar and one of the world's foremost thought leaders in entrepreneurship. John brings to his teaching and research 20 years of executive experience in high-growth retail firms, including The Gap, including two ventures he founded and one he took public. Since becoming an entrepreneurship professor in 1992, John has published five books, dozens of cases, and more than 50 articles in a variety of outlets, including Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, The Wall Street Journal, and others. His research has won national and international awards, and he is a frequent and sought-after speaker and educator for audiences in entrepreneurship and venture capital. John has authored and co-authored three widely recognized books, The Business Road Test, What Entrepreneurs and Executives Should Do Before Launching a Lean Startup, Getting to Plan B, Breaking Through to a Better Business Model, and one of my favorites, The Customer-Funded Business, Start, Finance, or Grow Your Company with Your Customer's Cash. John's newest book, Break the Rules, The Six Counter-Conventional Mindsets of Entrepreneurs That Can Help Anyone Change the World, identifies what makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurial and provides a roadmap for how anyone can adopt and master these mindsets to challenge assumptions, overcome obstacles, and mitigate risks. And you can do this even if you are not a traditional entrepreneur, but rather an entrepreneur inside an established organization. In this episode, he shares with us why it's better to get customers funding than venture funding or getting your company to fund a new business. Five ways that you can get customers to fund your business and six mindsets that successful entrepreneurs encompass, such as, yes, we can, problem first, not product first, and think narrowly, not broadly. Ladies and gentlemen, John Mullins. John, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's great to be here with you. Happy to be here. So I want to open up with two questions that I ask all of my guests. The first one is just for us to get to know you a little bit personally, unrelated entirely to any of your work, professional experience. If you could complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. You would know, Kaihan, that I'm an avid hiker. I hike probably 100 miles a summer. I live near the Colorado Rockies and I spend as much time there as I can. What is it about Colorado? Like every time I go to Colorado, everyone I meet is either they kayak, they hike, they mountain bike, they ski, they fish. It is a cultural phenomenon. It's in the air. It's in the water. I don't know what it is, but we're all active outdoor people and we're in a great place to do it. With 300 days of sun, I might add, each year. <laughs> right. As opposed to London and London Business School. Which is another great place, but not for the weather. Follow-up question, not one that we planned, but is it the outdoor interest that brought you to Colorado, or was it Colorado that brought the outdoor interest to you? The outdoor interest brought me to Colorado. And I think that's pretty typical of people who live here. You can hardly find anybody born here. Right. Came and stayed. So the topic of this podcast is strategy, and certainly what you write about is a lot to do with strategy, but it's also entrepreneurship and other things. But what's your definition of strategy? For me, strategy is something pretty simple. It's a plan of action that's intended to achieve some set of goals within a specific period of time. Great. Perfect. 
tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. We're going to get into what your work is, but what drove you? Because you had this career as both an executive and an entrepreneur in retail, and then you decided to step into thought leadership and academia. What motivated you to do that? I think a couple of things motivated that. One was that I'd been in the retailing industry for 20 years, and anybody who's been around retail long enough knows that 20 years is probably enough of that brutal industry. So I think that was part of it. But the second part was I was in my 40s. And, you know, when you get to your 40s, you think about, gee, should I do something different? So I think it was just time to do that. And I'd always played around with words in my career, whether it was writing training programs or writing ads or thinking about words. I love to write, always have loved to write. And I'd always always love teaching people how to do their jobs better. And so I said, what kind of career can I have where I get to write and I get to teach? Well, that looks like maybe being a professor. I called the people who were running the marketing departments at three Denver area universities where I was living. And I said, I'm thinking about a career change. Could I try my hand at teaching marketing 101, maybe? Turned out all three of them said yes. So I was teaching the same marketing 101 course on three different campuses to three different audiences in three different ways, all at the same time. And it was a hoot. I had a great time and it turned out I was pretty good at it. So I said, yeah, I think I'll do this. And then I went back to school to get a PhD, which is what I thought I needed to do if I was going to really do it right. And it's been great. That's amazing. So then you went to London Business School and there was, as I understand it, you know, you don't get to London Business School, which is one of the top business schools in the country saying, oh, I just like teaching. There's got to be a topic that you are uniquely known for. As I understand, you wrote an article that some London Business School professors knew about and they knew you. And so they gave you an opportunity to teach there temporarily, at least. And then you became a permanent professor there. What was that topic? What was the article? I majored in math as an undergraduate and I love numbers and I love to use numbers. And I think numbers are in many ways the language of business. And one of the things I've always had a good sense for is how to use numbers and how to help other people understand how to use numbers to make sense of what's going on in a business. I had written an early version of an article that ended up being an HBR article a couple of years later called How Fast Can Your Company Afford to Grow? And it took a bunch of working capital metrics. And by looking at your gross margins and your receivables days and your creditors days and so on, you could figure out how fast your company could afford to grow without needing any external capital. And that was a pretty interesting idea at the time. And that got me noticed by LBS. And then when that got published in HBR, LBS like that, and said, well, gee, John, maybe there's more you could do here. And by then I was working on my first book and that got published in London. And, you know, one thing leads to another, Kayan. If you do good work, you get to do more of it. Yes, yes. What I think is fascinating about your work, I can't put my finger on it. There seems to be a common theme or genre, but each of your books have such different and counterintuitive messages. Two of the ones that I most appreciate, and you know, I mentioned the books in my introduction, are Getting to Plan B, and the customer-funded enterprise. Before we get into your newest book, which is a topic that I am hugely passionate about, Break the Rules, could you talk to us about what you mean by getting to plan B? So I worked on that book in 2007 and 8, and it was published in 2009. And if you think back to those days in the entrepreneurship world and even in the corporate world, it seemed like the phrase business model was on everybody's lips in every other sense. 
But I didn't think anybody actually knew what they were talking about when they used those words. And I thought that it meant different things to everybody who said it. I said, I want to get to the bottom of this phrase and see if we can't help get some clarity around it. And a good friend of mine at Stanford, Tom Byers, invited me to spend a few weeks at Stanford, gave me an office and opened his Rolodex. And I talked to lots of people in California and elsewhere in the world. And on that journey, I talked to Randy Commissar, who's a partner at Kleiner Perkins. He'd been thinking about the same issue, interestingly enough. But he'd been thinking about it from a process perspective. So how do you move along from the idea that you have at the beginning to start a new venture, let's call that plan A, to what actually ends up working? And we know empirically that most of the time plan A doesn't work. It's something else that works. So he'd been thinking about the process and I'd been thinking about sort of the economic structure, the revenue model and the operating model and the working capital model and the investment model and how they all come together. And if you create a holistic set of these building blocks, you end up with a business model that can really, really grow fast. And of course, that's the holy grail for many entrepreneurs. So that's kind of how it happened. You know, I saw a problem and I said, okay, I'm going to study this problem and maybe it'll turn into a book. And it did. Yeah, Sassy, I'm making a connection as you're speaking now between that book and your following book, because I guess there are several complications. One of them is your willingness to give up plan A and shift to plan B. I think there's one story, maybe if you don't mind sharing it, that I heard you give at a speech that I attended about a team of people who created a company building boats in order to charter them. And that was the wrong business. It's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> Could you share that with us? Yeah, there these two guys in the UK and they loved the water and lived on the coast and they wanted to build a fishing business. But they said, well, to build a fishing business, you got to have a boat. They didn't have a lot of money. They said, let's build a boat. So they started building the boat and somebody came along and said, that's a really nice boat. Could I buy that boat? The two guys looked at each other and said, well, yeah, okay, if we can get enough for the boat, maybe we could build two boats. We'd have a bigger fleet to get started in this fishing business. So they sold the boat, started building another boat. Another guy comes along and likes the boat, wants to buy it. And the second guy says to the first guy, if you don't quit selling the boats, we're never going to get into the fishing business. Well, it turns out the business they got in was the yacht business. And that company today is called Princess Yachts. And they're one of the biggest yacht building companies in the world. But they didn't get there by saying, we're going to build yachts. You know, they got there because they loved the water. And one thing led to another. Happens all the time. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And so I can see there are all kinds of mental flexibility issues, but then there are also these financial barriers. And I think in your next book, my understanding of it is, remember you sharing a statistic that companies that raise a lot of money early on, Series A, don't do very well. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So in the process of writing Getting to Plan B with Randy, we told the story of Costco. Most of your listeners will know Costco. It's the only store I know in the world where you have to pay to shop in the store. What a ridiculous idea, right? We have to pay to shop in the store. Well, it turns out when we studied Costco, two-thirds of their operating profit year in and year out is our membership fees. Your 60 bucks and my 60 bucks added up. Two-thirds of the profit is just those fees. Two-thirds. So that means they can really run the retail business pretty close to break even. Well, how the hell can Target or Marks and Spencer in the UK, how the hell do you compete with that? So as I thought about that, I said, man, this is really phenomenal. I wonder if I ought to dig further into this idea of getting the customer's money to really fund your business. So another thing about Costco is the day they open a new store, they generate enough cash to open three more stores. Where do they generate that money from? From new memberships? From membership fees and the margins they create on day one. 
It's an unbelievable cash machine. So I said, I want to study this more. And that's what led to the customer funded business, because it turns out there are five ways to customer fund a business, one of which is pay in advance. That's what Costco has us do. But there are subscription models and five ways to do that. Matchmaker models like Airbnb and Uber. And that was another counterintuitive, to use your word, Kaihan, because everybody thinks that if you're going to be an entrepreneur or if you're going to start something new inside a big company, you got to go get money. You got to invest. Well, maybe you don't. I had studied many years earlier the Inc. 500 list as it was then. It's now 5,000. And I looked at one year's data. I said, how many of these companies raised venture capital? These are the fastest growing companies in the U.S. Six percent of them had raised any money. All the rest had, we call it bootstrapped. I call it customer funded, but they'd figured out how to get money from their customers, from banks, from anybody but an investor. But I think when people think about bootstrapping, it is out of necessity that, you know, we don't have the money, so we have to bootstrap. But I think you're arguing, even if I am an intrapreneur inside a big company, I'm at IBM or Microsoft, and I could get millions of dollars to take a shot. I think you're arguing that maybe you shouldn't. You should not go through that bureaucracy you should find a customer who has such a compelling problem that they want to rip your shirt off to get at the answer. And if the problem you're solving is compelling enough, they're going to pay you and they're going to pay you up front. You're basically only building if there is demand. Yeah, you get started that way. That's what Michael Dell did, right? We still have to pay for Michael Dell's computers before he builds them, right? It's a nice deal. The corporate mentality doesn't think that way typically, but I argue that if you're deep inside an innovation unit in a big company, if you can go out and get some customers, who are paying for what you want and show proof of demand, then you're going to get your capital committee or whatever it's called much more excited about giving you the resources you need to really grow it. That makes sense. So I think that's where you start. You maybe don't stay that way forever, or maybe you do. Michael Dell did. Steve Jobs did not. They both did just fine. Thank you. Right? Right. Right. I forget who it was that said the market should pull the product from the company. Both of these have extraordinary implications, but you do say that your new book, Break the Rules, of your four bestsellers is the most important book. Yeah, I think so. Why do you say that? I think it's important because it's really the first book I've written to reach a wider audience. So my first three books were all targeted entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs, and maybe to some extent the investors who back entrepreneurs. And they were widely read by that community, but they weren't intended for, nor I think were they read very much by people in large companies. But Break the Rules is different. So Break the Rules is an outgrowth of the 20 years of research I've done into what makes entrepreneurs tick, basically. And I've discovered that what makes them tick are the mindsets they have. And a mindset is the attitude or the mental disposition that you have that predetermines how you act when something around you happens, a circumstance or an opportunity that comes your way. And you have this mindset and you go, ah, this is how I act when that kind of thing happens. And it's kind of subconscious level as a repeating of past reactions. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a pattern thing. And so entrepreneurs, many successful entrepreneurs, live by maybe not all six of these patterns, but typically three or four of them. And they're all learnable. We have a big problem in big companies today. They all want to be more entrepreneurial, right? They want to be more innovative. They want to be more agile. Now, it's not entirely clear to me that once you explain to them that there's risk involved, that they still want to be all those things. 
<laughs> right. Set that aside. There's really a need to get beyond the sort of conventional rules that have governed these slow-growing big companies for so many years and set them aside and react to opportunities that come your way the way entrepreneurs would rather than the way a big company would. So I think this book's important because it reaches that audience. Yes. And the percentage of people who work within large companies is much larger than work within small companies, let alone that are entrepreneurs. And from what I've seen, if you look across like a multi-decade time frame, actually more and more people are working inside large companies. The entrepreneurial rates over the long term have been in slow decline. I don't know if you can briefly describe the six mindsets or if you can point out a couple of them that we should be particularly aware of. Yeah, they're really quite straightforward. The first is what I call, yes, we can. So in a big company, we're taught to stick to our knitting and build on our core competencies. And if somebody asks you for something that's outside that, you're supposed to say, no, we don't do that. But entrepreneurs, if they see a real opportunity, they go, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then they go back to their office or garage and say, holy cow, how the hell am I going to deliver on that? And they figure that out. But their initial response is, yes, we can to a customer who wants to do something outside the norm. Whereas in big companies, it's not. So that's the first one. The second one is what I call problem first, not product first logic. So in many big companies, it's all about the product. So we have Coke and New Coke and Diet Coke and Coke Zero and Coke Natural and Cherry Coke and Vanilla Coke and you name it. All these product line extensions. Tide, the same thing. Every year there's a new brand manager and the new brand manager tweaks the product. You know, he puts blue speckles in, takes the green ones out. What entrepreneurs focus on is problems. If somebody's got a big enough problem and I can solve that problem, I'm going to have a very nice business. So the problem comes first, not the product first. Fundamentally different mindset. Third one is thinking narrowly, not broadly. So in a big company, typically, if you want to do something new, introduce a new product or reach out to serve a new market, you've got to build a business plan and make a pitch to whoever it is that has the money and show how this thing we're going to do is going to move the needle. Well, entrepreneurs don't worry about moving the needle, at least not at the beginning. Phil Knight, when he started Nike, had a target market of elite distance runners who could pretty much run a four-minute mile. Now, how big is that target market, right? Almost nobody can run a four-minute mile. And it took five years before he could quit his day job and devote full-time to the business. But we all know what happened at Nike. Once they started winning medals, then every runner wanted to wear Nike shoes. And once they learned what they learned about importing shoes and designing shoes and getting athletes to endorse shoes, they said, well, could we do this basketball? Michael Jordan, could we do it in tennis? John McEnroe. So thinking narrowly at the outset without regard to the size of the target market might take you in a very interesting way. You already thought about this, obviously, I just want to call it out for our listeners is that it's harder to do that in a large enterprise because you're comparing your business against a much bigger business. You have a bigger needle to move in order to keep attention. Yeah, there's a little product known as Nespresso that is today the fastest growing part of Nestle's entire business. And that was started with an extremely narrow target market. And that took a long time to get there. But is Nestle happy that it's got that business today? Absolutely, they are. So those are four. The fifth one is beg or borrow stuff. Don't steal it, please. But in a big company, typically the mindset is, okay, I want to start this new thing. Well, I need this much money to do it. I've got to build a factory or build a kitchen if you're in retail or food service or whatever. Entrepreneurs don't think that way. Entrepreneurs know that most of the time plan A isn't going to work. And so why would you invest a lot of money in plan A if it's highly uncertain? Wouldn't it be better to borrow what you need to test plan A? And then if it works, well, then you build it. 
but don't build it first. So in one of my startups many years ago, we needed a commercial kitchen in which we were going to make fresh pasta. Well, you could build that kitchen, but we said, we don't need to build a commercial kitchen. Let's find somebody in Metro Denver who's got a kitchen that's not busy at night and let us borrow it. So that's what we did for the first year and a half until we proved the concept. And once we had proven the concept, we said, okay, now it's time to build a commercial kitchen. And then the last one is one that big companies really can't do. Entrepreneurs don't ask permission to do stuff. They just do it. So Travis Kalanick and Garrett Camp started Uber. They didn't ask in San Francisco, gee, could we start this different kind of ride business? They just did it. And had they asked, we probably would not have Uber today. But in big companies, you can't do that because you can't go down a road where the laws of the regulations are legally ambiguous because somebody might go to jail. So that's the only one of the six mindsets that maybe in a big company, you can't do that one. But the other five, you can do all of them. Because you have the core business that could be threatened if you do something that proves to be too far ahead of regulation. I know our listeners are taking notes and I took notes. I'm missing one. I've got, yes, we can. Problem first. Think narrowly, not broadly. I'm missing one somewhere here. Make or borrow and don't ask permission. I didn't talk about asking for the cash and writing the float. So you get your customer to pay you up front. That's the Costco story. So we pay Costco 50 bucks or whatever it is now before they let us shop in the store. Michael Dell wants money for the computer before he builds the computer. If you can get the money up front, you don't need capital to start something inside a big company. You can get a good start by getting your customers to fund it. And by the way, if your customers don't want to fund the new thing you want to start, that's probably really good information to have now. Yeah. So let's move on to plan B and plan C. That's great. Oh my gosh. I have so many other questions, so much more we could cover, but I know we've reached the top of our time with you. Any last minute thing that you want to share that you didn't get to say? I'm just excited to see if we can build a new generation of people in big companies that learn how to think more entrepreneurially. And I think five of these mindsets are entirely welcome inside large companies. I suspect the leaders of those companies would wish that their people would think this way some of the time. So I think there's real potential to ramp up the pace at which businesses grow today. And Lord knows we need it because growing companies are the ones that create the jobs. And if you're only growing at a snail's place and you're replacing people with capital all the time, as big companies often do, that's maybe not good for the society. So I think we need this kind of thinking in big companies and hopefully break the rules will make some small contribution to making that happen. We shall see. I'm sure it will. I love that you took something that seemed very amorphous, a kind of out of reach, innate, born with it character and been able to break it down to six things that we can all, as you say, we can all learn. We don't have to be born with. That's exactly right. We can all learn them. Well, John, thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you for being here. Nice talking with you, Kaya. Thanks for what you do. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.